If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 73. Uh, Psalms is in the very middle of your Bible, and we'll be looking this morning at the 73rd Psalm. We have been for a number of months in a study of the Gospel of John, and it's our purpose to break from that study for the summer and then to dive back in in chapter 13 in the fall. Uh, But as we did last summer, I hope this summer to uh, draw our attention to a few psalms. I I think it's so important for Christians regularly to be in the psalms as a matter of personal uh, devotion, personal prayer, spiritual cultivation. And this morning, I will be in Psalm 73. Please follow along as I read first verses 1 through 3, and then we'll actually skip ahead uh, to verse 13 and read to the end of the psalm. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, please jump down to verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we pray that what we have not, you would give us. What we know not, you would teach us. And what we are not, you would make us. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, there will be no change in our hearts from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness, from lies to truth, unless you, by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, come and do things within us. How often you have been pleased to do that through the preaching of your word. So please come now in these moments and open our hearts to receive the truth and use the truth to mold us more after your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1965, the famous 20th century British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones published a book on Christian experience, which is something of a mini-masterpiece. 
The title of the book is Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. Uh, now, you don't have to be depressed to appreciate the book. Uh, it's a book I would commend to every Christian because it's a book that focuses more broadly on Christian experience in all of its uh, diverse and varied dimensions. In the book's first chapter, Lloyd-Jones makes some remarks actually about the Psalms themselves, just generally about the book of Psalms. And this is what Lloyd-Jones writes. The simplest description of the five books of Psalms is that they were the inspired prayer and praise book of Israel. They are revelations of truth, not abstractly, but in the terms of human experience. The truth is revealed, excuse me, the truth revealed is wrought into the emotions, desires, and sufferings of the people of God by their circumstances through which they pass. It is because that is such a true description of them that the Psalms have always proved to be a great source of solace and encouragement to God's people throughout the centuries, both the children of Israel and the members of the Christian church. Here in the Psalms, we are able to watch noble souls struggling with their problems and with themselves. They talk to themselves and to their souls, bearing their hearts and analyzing their problems, chiding and encouraging themselves. Sometimes they are elated, at other times depressed, but they are always honest with themselves. That is why they are of such real value to us if we also are honest with ourselves. Now that is, in a nutshell, I think, why the Psalms have been and to this day are of such tremendous help to the believer. They give voice to Christian experience, uh, to our circumstances and our attitudes and our days as we pass through uh, this life, our experiences of God and of sin and of grace, of providence, of trial and of suffering of joy and of praise and many other elements that make up the Christian's experience. But I so appreciate the final words of that quote from Lloyd-Jones. They're so important for us. The Psalms are only of real value to us if we, like the psalmists, are honest with ourselves. And if we, like the psalmists, are honest about our experiences of God. Well, there's no doubt that Asaph in Psalm 73, is being painfully honest uh, with himself and with God. Asaph is reflecting on a low period in his spiritual life. That's really an understatement. Asaph is reflecting on something of a crisis of faith that he had in his own experience. A season, an episode of time, where he actually doubted the goodness of God, and his feet almost slipped, and he nearly stumbled into unbelief. A period of his life when his walk with God nearly came to an end. He gives us a window into his inner life, and he acknowledges things about himself that actually make him ashamed in retrospect. He also is vulnerable enough to share spiritual lessons that he learned through this season of spiritual crisis. Well, I don't think it's hard for Christians to actually sympathize with Asaph. Very few Christians, if they follow Christ for any significant length of time, will go through life, excuse me, will not go through life without meeting with some sort of spiritual crisis, uh, some sort of occasion uh, throughout the years to doubt God and even perhaps to challenge Him, uh, some occasion of personal failure in which our feet nearly slip and we fall irreparably. It should not be hard for us as the Lord's people 
to enter into Asaph's experience, and I want us to try to do that this morning. What I would like to do this morning very simply is open up Psalm 73 under four main headings to expound the psalm and then to provide a few brief lessons for us as the Lord's people. So first of all, we'll consider the occasion of Asaph's spiritual crisis. Secondly, the symptoms of Asaph's spiritual crisis. Thirdly, the solution to Asaph's spiritual crisis. And fourthly and finally, Asaph's reflection on his spiritual crisis. The occasion, the symptoms, the solution, and then Asaph's reflections on his spiritual crisis. So consider with me first the occasion of Asaph's spiritual crisis. Asaph begins the psalm with these words in verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Just stated at the very beginning, it's stated as a settled resolution. It's stated as a maxim of faith. It's stated as a, a thesis that has been proven. But, but now Asaph is going to invite us into his spiritual journey through which he arrived at this truth. So he's essentially going to say, yes, truly God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But I want to tell you about a time when I doubted this maxim of faith. A time when I doubted whether or not this was truly the case. And I want to tell you how through a, a period of spiritual crisis, a, a period of spiritual hardship, a period of personal failure, I actually doubted whether or not this was true. But through those periods of crisis and struggle, I came to see that this was true about God, that He's good to Israel, that He's good to those who are pure in heart. So the psalm starts with an objective statement about God. He is good to the Lord's people. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But then in verse 2, Asaph focuses now on the subjective. He says, but as for me, so God's good, truly God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He goes from the serenity and glory and wonder of what is objectively true about God to a moment of extremely honest and transparent introspection. God is good. Truly, that's established. But as for me, subjectively, I almost slipped. I almost stumbled. There was a time when I almost fell. It's like he came to the point where he almost lost himself altogether. There was a time in his spiritual journey when he reached such a point of crisis that he almost fell irreparably. Well, now to the heading itself. What was the occasion of Asaph's spiritual crisis? What was the occasion of the spiritual crisis? Simply put, it was Asaph's sense of the prosperity of the wicked. The occasion, the reason for Asaph's stumbling was, was his sense of the prosperity of the wicked. He says, but as for me, I almost stumbled, I almost fell. Verse 3, why did he almost fall? Why did he have a period of crisis? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The occasion for Asaph's spiritual crisis was his sense of the prosperity of the wicked. And listen to how he opens this up in the verses we didn't read, beginning in verse 4. Thinking about the wicked now, he says, for, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, the Bible will refer, especially in the Old Testament, to fatness as an indication of prosperity. 
nowadays we have such an excess of goods and foods and money and options that we have an obesity crisis in the United States. But in those days, to actually have so much food that you could be overweight and could be, have a body that's fat, that was a sign of prosperity. That was a sign of wealth. You must have such excess in terms of your storehouses and your goods that there's no scarcity of food over there. Their bodies are fat and sleek, Asaph says. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Asaph is saying the idea is that they, they live in this excess and this immorality and this materialism, and they do it before the face of God. And it doesn't seem that God does anything. Rather, God seems to accommodate their prosperity and their excess. Uh, verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. You may, in your Christian life... You're, you're fighting your sin, you're seeking to become more like Christ, you're seeking to carry your cross. The Christian life is very hard, it's very difficult. It involves, for every Christian, some measure of suffering in so many places in the world, persecution. And Asaph perhaps felt that. I'm trying to, to walk according to the law of God. I'm trying to uh, fight this internal spiritual struggle that we're all called into, and yet it seems like the wicked, they're always at ease. Life's just easier for them. The burdens I have, the anxieties I have, the, the awareness of my sin and the warfare that that invites me into, that, that creates problems for me. That creates struggles for me. But the wicked, they're always at ease. And it seems like riches increase for them. And then verse 13, you have this amazing admission from Asaph. In this moment of spiritual crisis, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and wash my hands in innocence. It's like, what was it all for? Why be a follower of God? Why obey the law of God? What's the point of it all? It's all in vain. Remember the opening verse. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But there was a point in Asaph's experience, namely verse 13, where he said, there's no point to being pure in heart. God's not good to those who are pure in heart. There's no blessing. In, in having a heart that's cleansed and hands that are washed and to walk in the paths of righteousness. There's no point to that. It's all in vain. God's not good to people who assume that posture and live that sort of life. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. There's apparent tension here for Asaph in his experience. I'm doing my part. I'm living according to God's ways. I'm seeking to honor God with the way I live my life. I've cleansed my heart and I'm obeying His Word. And it doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere with it. i got all these problems. My life is not what I thought it would be as a follower of God. And frankly, it kind of stinks. 
And, and I'm not experiencing the blessing that I thought I would experience as a follower of God. And yet the wicked over here, well, they're always at ease. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Their storehouses are full. They're experiencing prosperity. And it doesn't seem that God is alarmed by that or that God is giving them their just desserts. And there's this tension in Asaph's mind. When I thought to how to reconcile this, it was a wearisome task. It created internal tension and turmoil for Asaph. This doesn't make sense and it grieved Asaph. So for Asaph, the occasion of his crisis of faith was his sense of the prosperity of the wicked. The life of sinful men and women looked enticing to him, and it looked like they lived in their excess and their materialism and their immorality with impunity. God is not judging them, though they carry out their wickedness right before his eyes. And yet here Asaph is, seeking to worship God and seeking to live a holy life, following the prescriptions of God's Word, And he comes to say, what is it all for? Have I done all of that in vain? Is there any value in following God and in worshiping God? You know what? I should have lived just like the wicked. I'd be better off if I were like them. I would have been happier. There's no real joy or gain for me in following the Lord. And he's wondering, is it even worth it anymore to follow the Lord? I would have been better off living in sin and living like the wicked. Now, for the purposes of this sermon... I don't intend to make much of the particular occasion for Asaph's spiritual crisis. I don't want to focus on how we, in our day and age, our Christian lives might envy the wicked. I simply want to show that he had a spiritual crisis and also to share what occasioned uh, that crisis. And I want to note that it was apparently so significant for Asaph and his experience that he almost fell into unbelief. As he said, his foot almost slipped. This was almost the end of his walk with God. I sort of want to generalize Asaph's experience for us. The people of God do occasionally meet with such crises of faith. The circumstances are different, the occasions may be different, but the effect is the same. Something in our experience causes us to doubt God, or something in our experience makes us lose faith in the goodness of God, something in our experience makes us troubled so much that we wonder in our hearts, why did I even become a Christian? Look where it's gotten me. Look what I've had to give up. Look at what disappointments I've encountered in my Christian life. Look how hard the Christian life is. Why doesn't God bless me more? There are Christians that arrive at a place in their Christian walk. It could be one year on. It could be 10 years on. It could be 40 years on. But they may say, I didn't think it was going to be like this. The Lord has led me into the wilderness. And I wonder, did I become a Christian in vain? Is there any gain in following Christ and in believing upon the Lord and calling upon His name. It could be the result of some sort of suffering that we encounter. It could be the result of some major disappointment in our lives. It could be the result of a situation we find ourselves in that is just unbearable. And we say, is God really good? Is He good to Israel? Is He good to the Lord's people? Is He good to those who are pure in heart? Have I cleansed my heart in vain? Have I followed Christ in vain. After all, where has it gotten me? Well, Asaph found himself in the middle of a spiritual crisis, and the result was that he almost stumbled and fell to the ruin of his soul. But now consider secondly with me the symptoms of Asaph's spiritual crisis. The symptoms. So the occasion of Asaph's spiritual crisis is his envy of the wicked. But what are the symptoms of Asaph's spiritual crisis? The idea is that just like when you have an illness, 
It comes to expression in various symptoms. Well, we could say Asaph has a spiritual sickness. He's at a point of spiritual crisis. And how did this come to expression in his own heart and in his life? And I'm looking here now at verses 21 and 22. Asaph says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, the New American Standard says, when I was pierced within, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. How did Asaph's spiritual crisis come to expression? What were the symptoms for him? Well, he says in verse 21, it came to expression in bitterness. My heart was embittered. He's far from the joy of his salvation. He has a bitter heart, certainly bitterness over his circumstances. The wicked are blessed. They're prospering. Why don't I have all of that blessing? And here I'm stuck over here, having cleansed my heart in vain, and my life is marked by certain measures of austerity and want. He's bitter over his circumstances, and probably that translated into bitterness toward God. His heart was embittered toward the Lord. This isn't right. What is the value in actually following you if you leave me in this sort of a place? He was bitter. Uh, Also, he came to expression in a feeling of inner turmoil. He says, in the ESV, I was pricked in heart. The idea is really more than that. I think the NASB is better. I was pierced within or pierced through in my soul. The idea is that Asaph was grieved. His frustrations and bitterness led him to experience real grief and inner agony. He says, when I tried to think about this, it was a wearisome task. I felt frustrated internally. I was grieved internally. It felt like being pierced through with a sword. He experienced some sort of inner turmoil in this season of spiritual crisis. Another one of the symptoms we have in verse 22, and that is that it came to expression, this spiritual crisis, in acting out in senselessness and ignorance. He says, I was brutish, more literally senseless, like a brute beast. I acted out in ways that were irrational. When I look back on how I acted in that season of spiritual crisis, I say it was senseless. It was ignorant. The idea is thinking and acting in a way that is irrational. Having one's mind ruled by passion and emotion and all the insecurity and volatility that comes along with that. So this is the opposite of sober-mindedness. It's the opposite of self-control and having your mind regulated by the truth. And as Asaph reflected on this season of his life, he says, I was, I was senseless. I was brutish. I was ignorant. I wasn't myself. I wasn't in my right mind. And Asaph now in his more sober moments would reflect on that season of spiritual doubt and failure as senseless. I acted in a way that I now see clearly as irrational, as I see as the fruit of ignorance. And then he says, finally, the fourth symptom of Asaph's spiritual crisis, I was like a beast toward you. Can you imagine a more humbling admission? God, I acted like a beast toward you. He apparently gave in to animal impulses. He didn't act like a thoughtful, principled, sober-minded worshiper of God. He acted like a beast toward God, perhaps crying out and making demands and giving in to senseless impulses. He was altogether out of control, saying things and doing things he would never do in his more sober spiritual moments. 
Asaph had totally lost himself. He had given his mind and heart over to a way of thinking that was alien to the Bible and was so anti-God, he describes it as animal. I was like a beast. I was like some sort of wild animal. I was brutish. I was senseless. I was ignorant. His crisis of faith, his doubting the goodness of God, led him to lose all self-control and to act in a way that would later make him ashamed. Now, this is not an experience, I don't think, that is foreign to God's people. Perhaps you look back on a period of spiritual decline or an occasion of immense personal failure or something that makes you ashamed and you think, how did I ever act that way? I was so senseless. I was so ignorant. I just acted like an animal. I acted like a brute beast toward God. And you reflect on that now and it's, it's irrational. It's animal. It's senseless. Sometimes the spiritual crisis comes to expression in different ways for people. Maybe not bitterness. Perhaps extreme arrogance and pride that defies God, challenges God. Perhaps our doubting of God leads us to act out in self-pity and self-love. We lose sight of who we are and who God is, and we do things that we didn't think were possible for us to do. We adopt attitudes we would never adopt in our more sober moments. Perhaps like Asaph, we allow bitterness toward God and a sense of inner despair and disappointment to grip our hearts, and we become senseless and ignorant, ruled by our own passions and emotions and acting out in ways that make us ashamed. Well, these were the symptoms of Asaph's spiritual crisis. Bitterness, inner turmoil, senselessness, ignorance, acting like a beast toward God. But now thirdly, consider with me the solution to Asaph's spiritual crisis. We've seen the occasion, the symptoms, now the solution of Asaph's spiritual crisis. We're going to go backwards and forwards, back to verse 16 and then ahead through verse 24. In verse 16, Asaph writes, but when I thought how to understand this, all my doubts, all my frustrations, all my bitterness toward God, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Simply put, God became Asaph's solution. God became Asaph's solution. It was in the contemplation of truth about God and in God's actual initiatives to keep Asaph in his grace that led Asaph out of the endless maze of his own doubts and internal struggles. God became the solution for Asaph. The idea is that Asaph went. He went with all of his doubts and all of his senseless questions and all of his bitterness and all of his frustrations and all of his discontentment. He went to the house of God. 
He went into the sanctuary of God. He went into the place of worship, the place of God's special presence where God promised to reveal himself in special ways. Asaph went with all of his baggage into the sanctuary of God, into God's presence. And there he encountered something about God that caused him to wake up out of his fog and to discern God's ways and God's purposes for the righteous and for the wicked. Very simply, Asaph went to church with all of his baggage, with all of his inner struggles, with all of his questions about God, even with those things that made him ashamed. He went into the sanctuary of God still in that place of doubting the goodness of God, still in that place of struggling with God, still in that place of envying the wicked and being discontent over his own circumstances. And he goes into that place where God promises to be specially present, where God promises to reveal himself, and it's there that Asaph discerned the ways of the wicked and the ways of the righteous. It's there that Asaph was brought by God to contemplate things that are true about God, things that are true about himself, things that are true about the wicked. It was there that God met him. It was there that God revealed himself to him. What woke Asaph out of his faithless stupor was contemplation about God. It was coming into the sanctuary of God. It was being in the worship of God. It was being exposed to the truth about God. And Asaph was awakened out of his crisis of faith. The idea in this psalm is that as he was exposed to God through attendance upon corporate worship, it's like Asaph is brought to himself. It's his true thoughts about God were brought to bear on his situation and on his patterns of thinking. Everything changed. He came out of that fog, out of that spiritual crisis and embrace things that were true about the Lord. And this is why he says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. But now he can see, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Notice the, the pronouns. Asaph emphasizes in verses 21 and 22, My soul was embittered. I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. But notice how he leaves the subjective. He leaves himself and he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Remember the opening verses of the psalm, right? What's objectively true of God? God is good to Israel. Truly, He's good to Israel, and He's good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I'm fleeting, and I'm prone to wander, and my feet almost stumbled, and I almost fell irreparably. We have that same contrast reflected here now after the spiritual crisis as he reflects back on what took place. He says, I was, I was like a beast. I was like an animal. I was senseless. But, but this is what's true of you. Here's what I learned about you. Here were the truths about God that that flooded my mind and flooded my heart and roused me out of that period of spiritual decline and spiritual struggle and spiritual crisis. I came to see through my attendance upon the corporate worship of God, my entry into the special presence of God, I came to see that though I was all these things, senseless and ignorant and like a beast toward you, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And, and you hold me by the hand, and you guide me with your counsels, and you will receive me up to glory. I can't help but notice a parallel with Ephesians 2. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We're all this stuff. But verse 4 says, but God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. That, that but God in Ephesians 2.4 that's so precious to the Christian, we have it here in Isaiah 73, verse 23. I was like an animal. I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was doubting the goodness of God. Nevertheless, it's Asaph's but God moment. Though all these shameful things were true of me, though I actually came to the sanctuary of God with all of my questions and all of my doubts and all of my challenging of God and my discontentment and frustration, I came to see that though I was so fleeting and failing and prone to wander, there were things that were objectively true about God that were true regardless of how I felt when I walked into church that day. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I've been with you this whole time, apparently. You've been holding me by the hand, even in these seasons of crisis and doubt. You guide me with your counsels, and even though I've acted like a brute beast towards you, you will nonetheless receive me to glory. The presence of God crowded out all of the confusion and turmoil, all the doubts and all the questions, and Asaph was left with the blessed discovery that God was always with him, that God had not forsaken him, that God's eye was on him and that God was near to Asaph, and though Asaph was so out of control, God was so faithful and so good and so gracious to Asaph. In all of his instability, he found an anchor in God. In all of his senselessness and ignorance and acting like a beast toward God, he found sanity and serenity in what is objectively true about God. God became the solution for Asaph. But now consider with me fourthly and finally, Asaph's reflections on his spiritual crisis. The occasion of the crisis, the symptoms of the crisis, the solution to the crisis. And now Asaph's reflections on the spiritual crisis, and we have these reflections, verses 25 through 28. If you're in the market for a life verse, you could do a whole lot worse than Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. Asaph, reflecting now on this period of crisis, says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He says, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The idea is I, I have found verse 1 vindicated in my experience that truly God is good and He is so good and He is so perfect. His ways are so right and so true that I want Him more than anything else. There's nothing I desire above God. I don't want the ways of the wicked anymore. I don't want their sinful excesses. I don't want their sham prosperity. I want God and His ways. I want the goodness of God. I want His truth. I want the life that He brings. Asaph is so far removed now from his looking on the prosperity of the wicked and envying them. He says, 
who am I in heaven but you? And there's, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart will be filled up with God. He will be my portion. I'll be satisfied in Him. All my good comes from Him. And then he says, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. He says, my flesh, my heart may fail. Many of the commentators understand that word fail to mean like to perish, to die, to give out. Like, I'm going to die one day. I'm finite. My flesh will fail. My heart will give out. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my life is in God, right? Well, it certainly doesn't mean less than that, but I think it means more than that. Asaph is saying, my flesh and my heart may fail. I think not only in the sense that one day I'm going to die. I think he means my flesh, my heart, my life is so fragile. My flesh and my heart are so inadequate. I have no resources in myself. My flesh and my heart fail me. Like day to day, they fail me. I think things I don't want to think. I do things I don't want to do. I think the Apostle Paul could say this. Remember in Romans 7 where the Apostle Paul is reflecting on his own personal sin there, talking about what I believe to be the Christian life. And he says, you know, when I, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think he could just as easily have said, my, my flesh and my heart fail me. Like they're inadequate. Like, like I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not the woman I want to be. My flesh and my heart are so weak and so frail, and I'm so given to failure and to sin. I think that's more the idea. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, and they did fail. They did fail. I found myself wanting the sinful excesses of wicked people. I found myself envying immorality. I found myself challenging God to His face. My flesh and my heart have failed, and they may fail again, but God is the strength of my life. God is my portion forever. Though I am so weak, so frail, so fleeting, He is so strong. Though I am so unstable, He is unfailingly stable. Though I am so fragile and prone to wander, He is unshakable and He is steadfast. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, and they will fail, God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. Asaph says, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go for stability, for security? Where's, where's a refuge for my weary soul? He says, there's no one like God. He has to be my strength. He has to be my portion. My resources can't be found within. As we sang, it's, it's not in me, but only Him. And if I'm going to make it through this life, and if I'm going to stand on the last day, it has to be God who upholds me. He is the strength of my life. He is my portion forever. But it's not just, I mean, in our experience, it's not just that our flesh and our hearts fail us. We look within, and if we're being honest with ourselves, like Asaph, we would say, yeah, I can list many times my flesh and my heart have failed. But it's not just that. People fail us. Relationships fail us. Circumstances fail us. It's not just that, that I'm so fragile and so volatile and so weak. This whole life is so fragile. My flesh may fail me. My heart may fail me. My spouse may fail me. My church family may fail me. My job may fail me. My kids may fail me. But God, 
There's no security. There's no stability in this life outside of God. It's only found in Him. And Asaph came to discover this through his period of spiritual crisis. When everything was stripped away, and when he was left acting in senseless and ignorant ways like a brute beast, it was then he recognized, God is my only strength. God is all my portion. And he says, verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Those wicked people who I envied during that season of doubt and crisis, I see so clearly now that they will come to ruin. Then he says, verse 28, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He started the psalm with a reflection on the goodness of God. Truly God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. How do we experience that goodness? Asaph says it's through being near to God. I came to be near to God. I see that my good is to be near God, to know God, to commune with God, to come to deeper and deeper levels of experimental knowledge of God. It is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. Asaph sees now that his good is found in knowing God and being near to Him. It's being in God's presence. It's being under His eye and under His care. Perhaps he could say like David in Psalm 16 and verse 2, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. All that matters to Asaph now, after coming through this period of spiritual decline and spiritual crisis, all that matters to him is knowing God. I want to be near to him. There's no good for me in the life of the wicked. There's no good for me in my sin. There's no good for me in that sham prosperity. My good is being near to the living God being His child, being held by His hand, being kept by His grace, being in communion and fellowship with Him, being God's child. I'm reminded of a missionary that has been in my experience for my entire life, in, in the background of, of my life. The church that I was in supported this missionary. The last church I was in supported this missionary. And under the hand of God, in my acquaintance, people I actually know, he's probably been the most fruitful servant of God I've known. He's a missionary in the Far East, and he has been profoundly fruitful, profoundly fruitful. He's been an instrument in God's hands to influence tens of thousands of Chinese Christians, and he has been one of those, sort of the tip of the spear of what God is doing in that needy land. And he is as so we reflect on church history, Jesus Christ is the only hero, right? But we sometimes refer to heroes of the faith. This man was, to me, like a hero of the faith. He actually looks like an action hero. I mean, he was a wide receiver for LSU. He's like six foot four, six foot five, an imposing presence, a powerful, booming voice. And he's been like a hero to me. And he is much older now, um, probably near, retiring from the field. And he happened to be passing through the town of Mebin uh, just for a day, and the elders there asked him to speak. He could only speak for about 15, 20 minutes. And he got up, and, and he essentially said that, um, I've been able to see so much of the world. I've been able to be engaged in such wonderful things. God has been so kind to me. He said, but at this stage of my life, as I look back on 40 years of ministry, 40 years of serving Christ, I'm convinced that really nothing matters more than just knowing God. 
It's just everything. To know God and to be known by Him, to be near to God. I mean, this man had accomplishments in his background that any one of us would have jumped at, Lord, if you would use me in that way. He just viewed that as not unimportant, not precious, but, but just it's not the issue. What matters to me is that I know God, and at this stage of my life, all I want to do is know Him more, know Him better, know Him more deeply, know Him in more profound ways. Asaph is saying that here. As I pass through storms and trials, and valleys of this life. I reflect back now on seasons in my life, times that I am ashamed of. But I have learned, I have discovered that what truly matters is knowing God and being near to Him. That's the conclusion of the matter for Asaph. My time is nearly gone. Can I briefly share three lessons for us? I'll be quick. Three lessons for us from Psalm 73. Number one, very simply, we should recognize that Christians do meet with seasons of spiritual hardship and crisis. Christians, believers, people like Asaph, do meet with seasons of spiritual hardship and crisis. Even as Christians, as believers, we are susceptible to doubt, to sinful anxiety, to bitterness, to discontentment, to crisis, to embarrassing sins, all that kind of stuff. Christians are susceptible to seasons of spiritual decline, spiritual hardship, spiritual crisis. And it's in those seasons that believers may act in ways that are senseless and ignorant. Like Asaph, they may act like beasts before God. They may have terrible thoughts about God. They may doubt His goodness. They may question His faithfulness. They may act out in ways inconsistent with a profession of faith. They think things and say things and do things that in retrospect they view as senseless and ignorant. All that to say, we should not be surprised by failure in the lives of God's people. Weakness and sin are not alien to the Christian life. Christians do meet with seasons of spiritual hardship and crisis. Christians do think and act in disappointing ways. Now, why share this as a lesson for us? Well, it really does affect so much. It should affect the way we think about ourselves. It should affect the way we think about others. It should affect the way we pray. It should affect the way we cultivate a life of spiritual discipline before God. It should affect our sense of spiritual warfare and the susceptibility of our own hearts to sin. And it should affect our view of God. We can stumble. We can fall. We can fail. We can enter seasons of spiritual crisis even as those who are followers of Christ. Just a fact. It's just... Part of the truth that that happens in the experience of believers. But now the second lesson. There is no solution for the Lord's people in their times of spiritual crisis outside the objective truths of God's Word. There is no solution for the Lord's people in their times of spiritual crisis outside the objective truths of God's Word. The answer to our subjective doubts and questions and failings is the objective truth about God. You don't make it out of spiritual difficulties with worldly wisdom. You don't make it out of spiritual trouble with methods of self-help. You don't make it out of spiritual danger with seven helpful rules for positive thinking. There is no solution outside of God Himself and His revelation through His Word. It so often happens that when 
God's people find themselves in times of hardship, when they find themselves in times of spiritual difficulty, that they actually withdraw themselves from God. They draw themselves from the appointed means of grace, and they just step back more and more and more, and they attend upon the means less and less and less. So, like, where do you expect your help is going to come from? Where do you expect to find a solution? It's so sad, but it so often happens when people find themselves in periods of spiritual hardship, periods of spiritual decline, they withdraw from corporate worship. They withdraw from prayer. They withdraw from Bible reading. They withdraw more and more from Christian fellowship. They don't partake of the Lord's Supper. They don't attend upon what we call the means of grace. That is the means through which God brings His grace to us. Think of them as roads upon which the king travels. If you want to meet him, you can only find him along these roads. Corporate worship of God, Christian fellowship, Bible reading, prayer, the sacraments, these are the means of grace. And they're the appointed channels by which God brings His presence and the objective truth of His Word and the objective truths about who He is to bear upon our lives. And yet people, when they find themselves with doubts and times of discouragement, times of crisis, they just sort of step away from all of that. But we need to come to a place where we see that sort of response to our spiritual failings and our spiritual doubts as suicidal. That's the death of our Christian life. Remember, Asaph came into the sanctuary of God while he was still in that posture of senselessness and ignorance and being like a beast before God. But it was there that God met him. It's there that God woke him up. It's there that God disclosed to Asaph things about himself that he would not have seen otherwise. God used the means of grace. He used corporate worship. He used the Word of God to bring to bear upon the mind and heart of Asaph the objective truths about God and who He is. So if you find yourself in a period of spiritual decline, spiritual crisis, don't stop coming to church. Don't stay home from small group. Don't say, I'm really not in a frame to read the Bible right now. I'm really not in a place where I should be praying. I need to I need to get it together before I can do those things. Those are the means of grace. Those are the appointed channels by which God reveals Himself to us, and God rescues us out of our spiritual crisis, out of our fog, out of our spiritual decline. And we find ourselves in spiritual trouble. Let us run to the means of grace. Let's lay hold of them. Let's lay hold of the elements in the Lord's Supper and say, this is the body of Christ broken for me and His blood shed for me. Lord, Call to my mind what's true about you. Wake me up out of my sinfulness and out of my discontentment and out of my discouragement. Come and help me through your word and through the means of grace. The third and final lesson for us, that is that God is the only sure refuge for weak people like ourselves. God is the only sure refuge for weak people like ourselves. God is the foundation of our lives, and He's never more the foundation when everything else is stripped away. Like it's like at times God removes all the supports. He removes the foundations to show us that the only thing that was really holding us up was God Himself. We're going to sing a song in a few minutes, Christ the Solid Rock. We sing His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood.
when all around my soul gives way. It's like when everything's stripped away, when my life is in shambles, when everything that seems so stable and so secure is pulled back, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. And sometimes that's what God does for us and to us. He starts taking away those things that we look to for stability and for security and for safety. He strips those away and He says, what are you left with? And it's through that that we're left realizing it was only ever God. My strength, my portion has to be found in God. My goodness is found in the nearness of God. My goodness is found in knowing God. What are you going to do? Seriously, what are you going to do? I've known people like this. I've known situations like this. Marriages that appear so happy and so godly, and then one spouse wakes up one day and tells the other, I never loved you. I'm leaving you. What are you going to do? What seems so stable and so secure what seemed like the bedrock of your life, it's gone. I know Christians in that situation. You know Christians in that situation. What are you going to do? That job you so depended on for security, for stability, for provision, out of nowhere, you're blindsided by that envelope that slipped to you. You have two weeks. What are you going to do? You come to a place in your life where all of a sudden you're gripped by some weakness that you thought was long gone, some sort of internal anxiety that you think you shouldn't be struggling with, some doubts and some questions you shouldn't be struggling with, and all of a sudden, for reasons you can't explain, you feel so volatile and you feel so fragile and you feel so vulnerable and so out of control. Don't we know people in these situations? You've been following Christ faithfully for 50 years and you're, you're nearing the end. You got cancer or something and all of a sudden the most fundamental things you're starting to doubt and your body feels so weak and you think, why is this so hard for me? Why am I struggling like this? Everything that seems so stable is now gone. You feel like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress as he's crossing the river and all of a sudden his feet can't find the bottom anymore and he's, he's floundering and he's struggling and what seemed secure and stable is just kicked out from under you. Well, what will you do? If you don't have, if you have not come to see and come to embrace what Asaph came to embrace, you will fall and you will stumble. The only way Christian people make it through such valleys, such storms, such trials, is if they have this kind of a foundation. Though my flesh and my heart and my spouse, and my job, and my health, and everything that was foundational to my whole life, though all of that may fail, I have an anchor in God. I have a foundation in God. He is the strength of my life and my portion forever. And I may only be sensing it now, now that the pillars have been kicked out from under me, but He was continually with me that whole time. Though I may have looked at times to other things, He was always with me. He was the one holding me by my right hand. I was only ever safe, not because I had such a spectacular husband, not because I had such a spectacular wife, not because I was in such a healthy church and my pastors were wonderful. I was safe. I was secure. I was stable. 
only because God was holding on to me, because He was my strength, because He was my help. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there is never a good reason to doubt your goodness. Truly, you are good to your people. You are true to those who are pure in heart and good to those who have been saved by your grace. And yet we confess we have all been periods of our life, times of our life where we doubted that, where we spoke back to you, we doubted you, we spoke in frustration and bitterness and thought things and did things that make us ashamed. And yet, Lord, it has been about those unchangeable, objective things that are true of You that have always been our hope and our stay, that have always been the ground of our salvation. We're aware of so much weakness in ourselves, so much in ourselves that makes us ashamed so many things in our lives that are just so fragile that at any point can be taken away, at any point could fail us. But we thank You that we have in You an anchor for our souls, that we have in You strength for our lives, that our goodness is in You, our goodness is found in Christ, that our portion is not in this life, that our portion is not in our marriages, our portion is not in our jobs or in our circumstances. Our portion is found in You. We pray that You would cause our souls to run out to You in delight and satisfaction. Help us more and more to know You, to be near to You, to love You, and to cherish You. Help us more and more to see that everything we have that is good comes from You, and there's no good apart from You. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.